Welcome to Forest City Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here. We hope that you find today's message encouraging on your journey of figuring out what it looks like to follow Jesus in the 21st century. Hello. Uh, I'm going to be reading this morning from Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. So if you have your Bible or your phone, you can open it to Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Thanks, Noah. Good morning. Good morning. Well, I do have to say, I missed you last Oh, thank you. Last week, I was at a, uh, another church speaking in the morning uh, in Vancouver, and it was wonderful to be there, but this morning I felt like, you know when you go away and you come home, it doesn't matter if it's like camping or staying at a hotel, it's just so nice to be in your own bed. That's how I feel this morning. I'm just so happy to be back with everybody. I know it's been like one week, and most of you probably didn't even know I was gone, but I'm like, you guys, this is wonderful. Anyway, that's not what I came up here to say, but... I missed you. We are in a series right now that where we are examining um, the practice of prayer. And as such, as we're going through that series, we recognize that prayer is a vast topic. And um, try as we might, we probably will not cover every single question that you might have on the topic. I know, it's a surprise. But um, if During this series, maybe it's today, maybe it's next week, there is a question that arises. We would love for you to take out your smartphone, scan that QR code, and send in your questions because we think that some of the most rich material comes when we have the participation of those in the room. We want to answer and have conversations around the very real burning questions. So make sure you do that. And this morning as we begin, I want to share a story. When our oldest daughter was about a year and a half old, uh, obviously, if it was our oldest daughter, we were first-time parents. And as such, people told us, you know, don't worry about the milestones. People, babies do do what they're going to do, and they all catch up, and it'll all be the same in kindergarten. So we were not too worried when our daughter at a year and a half old was still not walking. And I had a couple people say, you know, she's a roly-poly baby. You know, roly-poly babies, there's a lot more to move around. So it takes them a bit. So we were like, okay, she's just lovably plump. And um, so we didn't really, we didn't get too worried. And, And she began, we realized that she was doing her best to walk, but she actually did not have the full flexation of her ankle on one foot. And so as such, she would, um, like, when I say stomp, it was actually with her knees, but she would, like, shuffle, stomp around on her knees everywhere she went. It was like, we have videos of her in Canadian Tire, just, like, 
like a mall walker, except she was like a mall shuffler. And it could be gravel, it could be pavement, it did not matter. People would be like, Ugh. but she would shuffle. And eventually at our 18-month um, checkup, we brought this up to the doctor that we were a little bit concerned and we were put on a, a wait list to see a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, which these wait lists are just like every other medical wait list, are long. But as it would have it, um, there happened to be one of the most um, world-renowned, literally world-renowned, orthopedic surgeons, pediatric orthopedic surgeons specifically, um, in Victoria. And more wonderful than that was the fact that this orthopedic surgeon in particular attended the church that we pastored at. And we didn't know him by name, or to, like, we didn't have a relationship with him, uh, but it just so happened in the last six months, his daughter started working in the office at the church. And so Jordan, being Jordan, wanders in and has a, has a conversation with her, and I don't know if that was his intention, but I'm going to assume, you know, he's looking out for his daughter. So he's chatting with her, and he says, you know, actually, Finley has just been referred to a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And, um, but it's going to be a long time. And she, the loveliest, says, let me talk to my dad. So sure enough, within a week, we are in to see this doctor, which is amazing because he's literally all over the world all the time. And um, so we go to this appointment and, you know, we're thinking maybe she's got a tight Achilles tendon or maybe there's something, maybe this is common. We don't know. We're first time parents, but, you know, we, we definitely know that there's something that's not quite right. So we get in, and we see this wonderful man, and we've had all these pre-appointment pre x-rays and all sorts of stuff done and consultations. And he's wonderful with her. He's so lovely, and she's lovely, and everything's wonderful. And he finishes with all the questions and everything he has for us. And he looks up at me, and he says, given that I have been working to manipulate her foot and warm up her muscle, and he probably used a lot more big words than I know, he said, I am unable to make it move, which makes me think it's neurological. And I said, okay. And he said, so my working theory is that she may have cerebral palsy, which in our knowledge and experience, we didn't have a big frame of reference for cerebral palsy, but it sounded very scary. And we were absolutely gobsmacked. We left that meeting, and he was so wonderful about trying to you know, there's many, there's a whole range of what cerebral palsy can look like and with the right therapy and all sorts of things. And he goes, I don't think we even need to consider surgery. And I'm like, surgery? And, you know, all of these things. And, and But we were just not expecting that result. That was not what we had walked in thinking. And then within a few weeks, you know, I'm with friends that have babies around similar ages and their babies who are younger than Finley are starting to walk and starting to do things that Finley's not doing. And I found this sense of envy rising up in me, that none of these moms were even thinking about anything their babies were doing in the sense of, is this cerebral palsy? Is this a result of cerebral palsy? She's not doing that. Is that cerebral palsy? And suddenly my senses were so highly alert to everything she did or didn't do. And we began to pray and we began to hope and we began to do physio and she wore a night brace and she was having all these, we were going back to see this, this uh, surgeon. And so a few months went by, and um, we went out to do some errands one day, and we dropped her with a friend. When we came back two hours later, our daughter, who had had 
no, really no progress in moving her foot. We came back and she was walking. And we were absolutely amazed and confused. And how did she go from no progress to suddenly walking in the span of two hours? Like, what kind of babysitter are you? This is incredible. And within a week, her foot had completely dropped to the ground and she had full flexation of her foot. We took her back to the surgeon and he was just as amazed as we were at her sudden healing. And we went, we went to you know, a couple of appointments for you know, following up with physio and everybody was just amazed. And we finally, about a year and a half later after this, and you know, in lots of ways, this is just a distant memory at that point, um, his wife was in the office visiting her daughter at the church and she said, you know, my husband still marvels at Finley's case. He has never seen anything like it in his whole career. And this man, I kid you not, has seen things all around the world. He's developed procedures and techniques and received the Order of Canada and all of these things. He has seen a lot of things. And I, to this day, could not tell you what happened. Do I call it a healing? Do I call it successful physical therapy? Do I call it a misdiagnosis? Maybe it wasn't CP. I don't know. To this day, we still do not know for sure. However, one thing I am very sure about is how many prayers we prayed in that season. We prayed for, her, for our little girl that she would have independent mobility, and many, many people were playing, praying along with us. I don't know by which means her healing came about, and praise God, she's never had any other symptoms. But her full recovery and our prayers for her full mobility were answered. Amen. Many, many valid questions around the idea of answered prayer have been asked throughout the centuries, and I am well aware that there are many people, either past or present in this room, who are saying, I have had huge prayers that do not seem to be answered. And it's a common feeling, a sense of confusion or anger or grief or celebration when our prayers are answered or not answered or the outcome is what we wanted or it's not what we wanted or I said all of these prayers, did I do it wrong? Should I have done it differently? Should I have said something else, done something else? Maybe it was, you know, I, I wasn't super happy in that crosswalk and I walked slowly. Like, do you think that has like lowered my score? Why are some prayers better than others? And as Jordan mentioned last week, the need for prayer is deeply embedded, embedded in our hearts. It doesn't matter which religion of the world, there is some form of prayer. And you see people all the time who would consider themselves non-religious in any capacity, who they get to the end of their own rope, and they will have some form of a prayer or a manifesting or a something that's like, the universe, just please make this happen in my favor. But there still is a mystery behind the requests we make in prayer. Sometimes they're loud prayers, sometimes they're silent prayers, sometimes they're prayers from an ache. What can we do to make sure our prayers are answered? Are we overcomplicating it? Maybe we need to make, maybe we feel like our prayers are not grandiose enough. If they were bigger, if they were a bigger display, if I spoke louder, maybe God would answer me. Karl Barth has a quote that in part says, they lose themselves in the heights and the depths where there is no place for the man who is simply making a request. 
meaning we get ourselves so worked up about how should we pray, can we pray, how are my prayers going to be answered best, that we forget that we are coming with a simple prayer. And today, as we continue our series and looking at different aspects of prayer, we are examining the idea of prayer as petition, as in what are the things that we ask God for in prayer, as opposed to thanksgiving or lament or confession, what are the things we are petitioning God for in prayer? How do we do that? So we're going to break it into three little hooks. Petition is humbling. Petition is persistent, and petition as a daily petition, not partition. Petition as a daily rhythm. So let's get into it. Number one, petition is humbling. So real talk, in Jordan and I's marriage, we've been married for almost 12 years, we have had to continuously tackle this one subject. And that is my assumption that Jordan should just know Okay? Jordan should just know what I want for my birthday. Jordan should just know that although I said I wanted ice cream when he left for the store, he's home now and I actually want chips. And I made a joke about it earlier, so you should have picked up that that might have actually been a thing that I wanted, so you should have got chips just in case. Hashtag pregnancy talking. Or perhaps the very worst, I am upset about something not at all related to Jordan and he should just know what I need to feel better. And one of the greatest ways we have overcome this, this is the free marriage advice for the day, is that Jordan has learned to ask me the question, what do you need right now? And this question is fantastic because it does two things. One, most of the time I don't even know what I need, and so I have to think about it. Because I often think Jordan should just know what I want, but I don't even know what I want. <laughs> Guys, come on. However, it also makes me have to advocate for myself that this is actually what I want and I need to express it to him because it turns out he actually still can't read my mind. <laughs> Prayer is not unlike this. And if you're anything like me or maybe another in this room, you'd say, why do I need to ask? Doesn't God already know? And we must be active participants in our own prayer life. We see this over and over and over again in the Gospels. We see this in Mark 10, and this is the story of blind Bartimaeus, and I'm going to just paraphrase. But he heard Jesus of Nazareth was coming, and he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were like, shh, 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 that's Jesus, stop it. And Jesus says, call him over here. So Jesus he, his disciples or whoever goes over there and he stands up and throws off his cloak and he jumps to his feet and he says to Jesus, Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? You don't already know Jesus? Like, come on. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This happened all the time in the Gospels. People would approach Jesus, but you see them having to request or make movements or get closer to Jesus. They are active participants. Bartimaeus did not sit on the side of the road and say, okay, he'll, like, I can't see anything, so he's going to have to come to me, and he'll just know. He did everything he could to get closer to Jesus and speak out his request. But here is the sticking point. I hate asking for help. 
In the stereotypical case of a man who will not pull over for directions, I am that man, okay? Jord, on the other hand, has already pulled over. He's asked for directions. He's invited them over for dinner. He's found out how many kids they have. I will run out of gas before I ask for directions, okay? I do not want to be an inconvenience. I do not want to look dumb. I will not ask. <laughs> Some of you are like, hmm. I will not ask unless I absolutely have to. Why? Because it's vulnerable. I don't, I don't, I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to be annoying. I don't want to be that like helpless girl that's like, hi, I don't know where I'm going. Girls are so bad with directions. You know, actually Jordan's worse with directions than I am and he'll tell you that himself, so just for the record. Um, but it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable when you have to ask for help because it's admitting you need help. And when we go to God in prayer and we say, I need help, we are admitting we cannot do it in our own strength. And so when we petition in prayer, it is a continuous, constant practice in humility and realignment that God is God and we are human. We are finite. He is infinite. We need to ask for prayer because it realigns us with the reality that we do need him. We need God in all of these moments and all of these opportunities who is really in control because I actually have control over so little. And sometimes it's like, well, why doesn't he just do the things? Like, why, why does he make me ask in the first place? Why do we even need to, you know, like, if, if that's going to make my life better, why would I even need to? Here's the thing. God is consistent, and God is a God of free will. He knows all, and he desires that we ask him, but he isn't going to change or intervene into realities we have not asked him to. He's given us free will to choose whether we want him in our lives, and if he just did everything we wished for, it overrides our choice to consciously choose. It overrides our choice to choose relationship, to choose to realign ourselves. It overrides the free will that we so badly wanted as human beings. If this was a world where God jumped in before anything bad would happen, that's not free will. He wants to be invited in. He stands at the door and knocks. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said, God has instituted prayer to impart to his creatures the dignity of causality. Same with my two-year-old. Do you want pink socks or blue socks? She's like, I don't want socks. So we're not unlike her most of the time anyways. But it's like she wants a choice. We want a choice. And so we have to choose to bring God in, realign ourselves with who is God and who is man, and ask him. We are partnering with God in the future of our lives. He obviously knows all before we ask, but our prayer and our petitions are changing the course of our lives and how and the trajectory of which they are going because we have asked. We can imagine or hope for a different future and we can ask God for it, which is a privilege. So if this reality changes the conscious acknowledgement which we pray that we are humbling ourselves and admitting we need God we need his infinite greater and wiser guidance in our lives than anything we can produce on our own this is the basis to what some would call the sinner's prayer 
that initial prayer where you say, God, I am so sorry for how I thought I was the Lord of my life. Would you be the Lord of my life? I want to follow you and your ways more than my ways. It is the humility and acceptance of our own humanity that allows us to even enter into relationship with God. And again, it comes from us first before God can respond. It's the conscious ask. Choosing to ask doesn't just change the realities around us. Choosing to ask changes us. It changes who we are. And it's with that exact kind of conscious choice and prayer and accepting Jesus to be the Lord of our lives that allows us to be adopted into the family of God. That is through Jesus' death on the cross that we have been adopted, Scripture would say. We've been grafted in. We've inherited the rights and the privileges of a parent-child relationship with God the Father. As Jordan already said, he blew, Jesus blew the minds of the Pharisees and the people around because although God had been, you know, the father of Israel or whatever, God had never been addressed as Abba Father, as this warm, cozy, daddy relationship before Jesus. And that kind of relationship was completely new. The kind of affectionate, casual addressing of a daddy says something so different than when you hear in an old 16th century movie and they say, Father, which is a terrible accent. <laughs> Accents are not really my thing. I can do like my two-year-old speech impediment, but that's about as far as it goes. But we, fathers, good fathers, are invested personally, emotionally, in our well-being. They care, which leads us to our next point. Prayer is persistent. And I do want to add the quick caveat that we are going to talk a lot about a relationship of prayer like a father and a child. And this might be a really hard reality for you to envision. Perhaps your dad was not around. Perhaps your dad was nowhere near an ideal dad. Or perhaps he just was distant and unavailable. This can make the idea of God as a father a really, really tough one to behold. And if this is something that you personally can relate to, first off, I'm so, so sorry that that person who should have been your safest place was not. And secondly, in the place of this kind of figure, either place a person that you've always felt safe to run to or if there has not been that person in your life, imagine the person that you wish you could have run to. And Noah already read this for us, but I purposely, although the whole message is not hinged on this, I think this parable trips a lot of us up because it kind of puts a bad taste in our mouths. In Luke 18, it says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable that showed them how they should pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. This is important. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming back to him with the plea, Please grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to them, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. What a benevolent individual. 
And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. Will God not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, the Son of Man comes. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you're taking notes or you're in your Bible, underline faith. This parable puts a bad taste in your mouth, at least it does for me, when I first read it. We see God, we paint him kind of as this careless judge, that's who we assume he is in this scenario, that if we just wear him down with our request, fine, whatever, yes, you can watch TV, just leave me alone, like, whatever. He doesn't really care, it's just that we're nags. But what is being demonstrated here is the model of persistence. What is happening in this in this parable, is how much more when we petition God with our persistent prayers, how much more than this unjust judge does he want to and is able to give us what we need? Meaning, if we can wear out people who really don't care about us but will grant what we need, how much more is God who is on our side, who wants the very best for us, is able to give us what we need? This is a tone that we do see over and over in the gospel, this differentiating comparative language. We see it in Luke 11 in a, in a perhaps more famous verse where it's talking about if your father, if, which of your fathers, if you ask for a fish, will give him a snake, or if you ask for an egg, gives him a scorpion. And I'm like, who has scorpions laying around? But if you then, who are evil, meaning we have corrupt motivations, if you who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father want to give you good gifts? That's what it's saying. How much more than this unjust judge is God wanting to give you the desires of your heart? J.I. Packer, the theologian, says, To those who are Christ, the holy God is a loving father, and they belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and are always sure of his fatherly concern and care. This is the heart of the New Testament message. However, if we're looking at God as this benevolent father, it still raises the question, why must we persist and petition in such an unrelenting manner? It feels undignified. It feels like, come get it, come get it, come get it, and you just can't get it. But I really believe what is actually revealed, the hidden gem of this whole parable, is that persistence is not actually an ugly game of control, but it's actually showing us the beauty of relationship. To be boldly, obnoxiously persistent and still only met with nothing but love can only draw to mind one example. Who can approach politicians and royalty for big and little petitions and trivial requests like, watch me do this really cool trick. Do you see it? I'll do it again. You watching? Do you see it? I learned it from my kids. They showed that one to me multiple times last night. Can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? Only children can go to their fathers and their mothers who are royalty and have all sorts of people that are respectful and approach them. Only children can do this kind of thing. 
to petition and persist to bring something to God again and again and again. There is no other relationship in the world that is acceptable except between a parent and a child. As Jordan already preached my sermon for me at the beginning, thank you for that. However, let me tell you this. When I was six years old, I became dog-obsessed. I wanted a dog so badly, and my mother was a cat lady, and my dad was a happy wife, happy life lady. So my life, to, my like, hopes of getting a dog were very small. And so I was like, I will convince them. At school, I'd take out every book in the library. I would take out all the dog books. I had dog posters at the, from the book fair. I'd get the little cute doggy posters. And I actually read a book where there was this kid who dragged a roller skate around the neighborhood to convince his parents he was responsible enough to get a dog. Brilliant! I got a sock and started doing the exact same thing. I managed to get convince our neighbor to walk their dog. Their kids were all in high school and had no care for the dog whatsoever. Losers. And I was allowed to walk the dog. I'd go to the store and I'd buy a box of milk bones and I'd take them down to Angus. And my parents were like, this is great. Now she doesn't need a dog. And I was like, see how good I am at walking Angus? I could do this with my own dog. And I, and I begged and I pleaded and I begged and I pleaded for two years. Two years. And then one day I convinced my mom, I said, can we please just go to the animal shelter and just look? I've never even been to an animal shelter. Could we just go and look at the dogs? She was like, fine, we're not getting a dog. I was like, okay, I just want to look. So there was this cute, furry brown dog. And then there was this quiet, loppy-eared black dog with a white chest. But a week later, my dad came home from work. It was a hot summer evening. I remember him taking off his sunglasses and coming in the house and saying, kids, come and help me unload the car. Groceries are melting. So I drag myself out of the house. We get to the car. My dad opens the trunk of our very old Ford Aerostar. And there in the back is the black dog with the floppy ears. And my dad said, quick, go get a bucket of water. It's, she's thirsty. And I actually, I'm going to cry thinking about this, but I remember running to the back of the house and crying and being like, oh my gosh, I don't know why I'm crying. I need to stop crying. They're going to think I don't want the dog. And I'm like, and I'm so I'm crying and I don't want them to be like, if you're ungrateful for this dog, we're taking the dog back. So my mom comes around to help me. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I really love the dog. I love the dog. I'm just maybe, maybe I'm sad because we didn't get the brown dog. I'm not sure why I'm crying. And I was like trying to like make up for it. And she's like, honey, you're crying because you're so happy. I was like, what? That's a thing? Nobody told eight-year-old Amy you could cry out of happiness. But here was my long-awaited puppy, my answer to prayer. Did my parents have the ability to get a dog anytime they chose? Yes. Would they have considered getting a dog if I'd asked once? Probably not. Did my relentless pursuit over two years convince them that I really wanted a dog and was really ready for a dog and it wasn't going to fade away? Probably. Did they get a dog for themselves? No. They got a dog out of their daughter's consistent asking, pleading, and dreaming, and they were so delighted to see the joy that I experienced as a result of giving me this beautiful gift. But notice, over the many years that I spent hoping and pleading for a dog, I didn't just stand there and repeat myself. 
My parents might differ on that, actually. But it was sewn into my every moment of reality. I brought home books. I talked about it. I played puppies all the time. I walked my sock up and down the road. You know, the request was not far from my consciousness. And the beauty of this arrangement is not that I had a formal contract in place. Child is responsible for X. And when they do it, parents will respond in kind with Y. No, we would balk at parents who only gave their love if the conditions were met. I can barely handle watching the crown and the queen's children approaching her and there's like all this pomp and circumstance. So I'm like, that doesn't look comfortable or comforting. That's not how families should act. Maybe I'm uncouth because I'm from the west coast of Canada. But that is certainly not how I approached my parents. There were zero curtsies involved. I bypassed every formality, every, please stop please just stop. And I went straight to them over and over and over and over, and they were the only people that could grant the desire of my eight-year-old heart. This is how a relationship with our father should be. So if we're tracking with this, if we get it, there's an ease and a comfort to the relationship with the father as his children. In verse 8, it says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that is faith that we continue to return to the Father. This faith means you put your whole trust, your whole weight. Sometimes when the Bible translates it as believe, it's actually a better translation would be to put your whole weight in. I believe this chair is going to hold me, so I sit down in it and I don't like brace myself on my legs. I put my whole weight in it. To trust that he will hear you, he has heard your prayers, and yet we can continue to return and pray and petition. This is the faith in which we are supposed to approach God. And perhaps it doesn't take much for you to understand that if you had a healthy relationship with your parents. But what if you were persistent in your request Maybe they were simpler requests than that. Maybe the answers or the breakthrough or the solution you sought from God never came. What do you do with unanswered prayers from this good father who wants to give good gifts? The very, very real, very deep, very painful prayers. The diagnosis, the financial breakthrough, the relationship difficulties. What if in all your persistence it never comes? It leaves us wondering, was I not persistent enough? Did I do it wrong? Let me give you this analogy. My daughter, my youngest, is two. And in the night she will yell, Mommy! Mommy! I'm like, Jordan, she's calling you. He's like, no, she's not. Actually, Jordan did get up with her last night, so points to him. Water! water and she knows I hear her and that I will come to her aid and guess what she has done absolutely zilch when it comes to earning rousing me out of a dead sleep in the night to go in and she says water and I'm like it's right there but she knows I'm going to do one of a few things I will either one refill her cup if it is in fact empty two point out or find her cup if she's put it somewhere in her bed or three tell her no, I've already seen how much water you drank earlier, and if you drink any more, you're going to have an accident. 
However, I will realize probably why she woke up is because the covers have been pushed to the end of her bed and she's cold. So I will tuck her back in. None of these, none of these responses are coming from her well-tuned request based on her behavior the day before. Like, well, you were kind of a jerk to me in the car, so not doing anything for you. No. The response to her request is all based, hear me, the response to her request is all based on the information that I possess that she does not. So to trust and relentlessly bug, such as my daughter, is childlike faith, it is childlike trust that yes, it will indeed, my mother will come to me and she will give me the thing that I really do need. Not necessarily the thing that I really want, but the thing that I really need. And it's painful because even with this reality, God is not working in a vacuum. We are praying and we are requesting and we are aching for something. But as I said, God is a God of free will. And he loves us too much to force our hand or control or manipulate others. We have, the dis we have the discernment and the reality that we can choose to follow God and his leading in our lives or choose not to. And so does everybody else. But is, still, is God still ultimately in control? Yes. But it is so hard to lean into the trust of God when we think we know exactly what we need and it doesn't come through exactly how we want it. But you know who can relate so deeply? Jesus. In Matthew 26, it says, going a little further, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is the famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane where he is in such pain, he experiences a medical event that I am going to butcher called hematorrhosis. Basically, a condition where your blood vessels break that are feeding to your sweat glands and you begin to essentially, the, the blood leaks into the sweat and you sweat drops of blood. And that is the result of incredible physical or mental anguish. Jesus already knew why he had to die. And yet he still said, God, if you are able please take this from me. He calls out to his heavenly father for this burden to be removed, but he also ultimately trusts that God's authority is the one that he will follow, not his own. The pain and disease and realities on our earth, why does God not intervene the way we want him to? The short answer is I don't know. However, Timothy Keller has this beautiful quote, he says, your father gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Engaging in this kind of prayer gauges your level of understanding of the gospel. Is this a confident, secure, trusting parent-child relationship or a working contract that you only approach the boss if you've done good work or you approach the boss because you've done good work and you're demanding something? God is not a genie in a bottle. God is not a vending machine that you put the money in so you're expecting you're going to get something. That's when we get confused with prayers because we have expectations of God as a machine, but he is a sovereign, living God who weeps with us in our pain. Prayer is trusting that God knows better. And lastly, I'll be closing with this. Petition as a daily rhythm. 
real quick. Prayer of this magnitude sounds like, okay, yeah, in the big, busy, dramatic moments of my life, yes, I get it. But God is actually wanting us to pray like this on a daily basis. Not all of us are walking through the deepest waters right now. Some of us are, and I promise daylight will break at some point. But some of us are walking through a sunny day feeling like, okay, I'll put this in my back pocket for later. But this is not just for the storms, friends. This is for every single day. Jesus demonstrates in Matthew 6, verse 11, give us today our daily bread. God, give us the things we need to sustain us for today. The patience, the finance, the intentionality, the safety, a perspective of gratitude, whatever it is, Lord, provide what we need for this day. This is our daily bread. We are petitioning God today for today's needs, not tomorrow's wants. We are told not to worry about tomorrow. Pray for the things that we need for today. And when we are praying for today's needs, it'll shape tomorrow's attitudes and perspectives. God invites us to ask him for the basics. He's never promised to make us millionaires. To live in excess does not demand a relationship with God. Perhaps that's why Christianity is declining in the West, is because we have so much. We don't need to rely on God for anything more than a victory to football games. We need to continue to ask God for everyday things. Well, I know there's going to be food on the table tonight. Well, give thanks. Thank God that you have a fridge full of food. Sometimes it is when those moments happen that we are able to thank God when you say, well, like, what, you pray for parking spots when you probably have gotten that spot anyways? Maybe. But look at how I get to just practice gratitude. This week I was so tired, I was on my way to work, and I was like, the only thing that is getting me there is that I will have a cup of hot coffee undisturbed by children when I get there. I got there, and sweet Kaylin had got me my Starbucks coffee order. <gasps> I didn't even know she knew my Starbucks coffee order, and I was thrilled. When we cultivate a daily ritual, a daily habit of prayer, when we cultivate this, gratitude has an opportunity to flourish in our lives. And it allows us to sustain ourselves in the seasons of barrenness. Archbishop William Temple says, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. So as our faith grows, so does our trust. As we continue to lean into the weight of faithfulness of God, we begin to see how trustworthy he truly is. I'm inviting the keys back up. The more our trust grows, it allows us to step further and further in faith and see blessings and cultivate gratitude where before we might have only felt frustration or annoyance or entitlement. When we see God answer the little prayers, it seeds the big prayers. During the Holocaust in the Second World War, there's a famous story about Corrie Ten Boom and her sister who were sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister Betsy, who later died there, and Corey endured imaginable horrors. And this is the abridged version of this story, and the real version would make your skin crawl. However, 
Her life was unmarked by an unshakable trust in her heavenly father and was punctuated by prayer. She seemed to live an almost continual conversation with God, asking and trusting in her heavenly father for everything. If a care is too small, no care is too small to be turned into a prayer, she would say. Praying in this way, the two sisters managed to live with extraordinary joy until the day that they were transferred to a dormitory infested with fleas. Finally, they began to despair. What possible purpose could have come, could their loving father have allowed this to allow these dire conditions to get even worse? But then, noticing that the brutal camp guards refused to enter their new quarters out of fear of fleas, they realized that God was using the fleas to provide them with a safe place to minister to other prisoners undisturbed. Somehow, those two indomitable sisters even began to thank their Father in Heaven for fleas. When you have cultivated a vision and a thankfulness and a gratitude from God, even the darkest of situations have moments that you can thank the Lord. So Jordan's going to come up and we're going to enter a time of communion. But I just want to encourage you today, depending on where you're at, God speaks to us and often we are not listening when he's speaking and we are asking why is God not speaking but often are we entering the conversation with him so today we must put our trust in our heavenly father who invites us to come into your office whether you're in the middle of something or not he is not inconvenienced by our prayers he is not inconvenienced by our petitions by filling our days with tiny prayers, we relinquish our sense of entitlement and receive each detail as a blessing, each coincidence as a minor miracle, training our neural pathways to rejoice always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in more resources, messages, or signing up for our current events, you can find everything on our website at forestychurch.ca.